On the Empire Podcast this week, we ask Neil Jordan all about Greta. The fact that it wasn't overtly sexual, I thought was really kind of refreshing. I'm a bit tired of sex. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's my age, you know. (laughs) And Andrew Scott comes in to talk about hot priests looking for love in our area. Wait. No, apparently it's about his new film, Steel Country, which is out this week. It was great. I pretended it's method that I, I just ate ice cream basically for breakfast for <laughs> six weeks. Pretended I was, I was, um, and lunch and dinner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a real experience. All this plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is getting into the Easter spirit by hiding eggs all over the office. Sadly, they turned out to be alien eggs and we've lost several colleagues to facehuggers. But at least we're in the Easter spirit, so that's that's something. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, Chris Hewitt is once again away gallivanting around for no reason. But never fear, because I'm nevertheless joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning as is traditional. First up, we have Nick DeSemlin, a man who enjoys an egg as long as it's a dinosaur egg. Isn't that right, Edmund? I do. I love a dinosaur egg, unless a raptor's in it and it bites your face off. Um, have you guys seen the advert for the Universal Studios Jurassic World ride, which is opening this week, I think. It is very exciting. Have you seen this? It's like a T-Rex chasing like all kinds of people through Universal Studios. It is very cool. I need to go on that ride immediately. Have you been on the old one with the with the T Rex and the sort of it's a water ride going yes. through on a boat? Many, many, many times. Many times, yeah. But this has to like it's got a big drop. It, yeah, it's got a. And I hope they that. have kept that big drop intact, but yeah. with an animatronic Edmund. <laughs> I've insisted on it. You you have. I was going to say, have you? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, they weren't returned. They haven't. They haven't gone back to you. Uh, not yet. But I'm assuming they're they were just, busy building the animatronic version of me. Exactly. They're probably just trying to get the money together to pay for your for your rights to your face. It's expensive. Of course. Of course. And next up, we have our West Wing guru, James Dyer, who has promised to wear bunny ears throughout this entire recording if we allow him to plug pilot for 10 seconds. Well, actually, you have a double pilot thing because last oh, week, last mm. week, I was away. I was in Chicago for Star Wars Celebration. You, sure really? Will, You've which, never mentioned it. Which I'm sure it. I will tell you about very, very shortly. But while I was away, Nick replaced me on the Pilot TV podcast. <gasps> you were substitute James, weren't you? I did, like how, a much better model Android. You were. You were a lot better. How, how, how did you find it? Uh, it was daunting, uh, but I, I tried my best to uh, supply Picard news, as people are hoping for. So if uh, <laughs> if my presence was not enticement enough to come and listen to the Pilot TV podcast, do listen to the latest one, because it has Nick instead, and, you know, you will prefer Well, no, anyway. that does sound better. Yeah, this is what's going to happen, I guarantee. Like, the stats for Pilot will go through the roof <laughs> for that one episode that I'm not there. Well, Edmund has his fans. Yeah, That's true. why they want him in the ride, you know, yeah. so it yeah. makes Everyone sense. who watched Jurassic World went and listened to the Pilot TV podcast. I would be a very happy raptor. <laughs> but yes, no, I was in Chicago for Celebration, and it was insane. I saw you hanging out with R2-D2. I did. I met R2-D2. I met BB-8. I met everyone out there. Did you meet BB-8's new friend? D-O. I saw D-O. I didn't get to speak to him. They're not putting any effort into the names anymore, are they? (laughs) I love the fact that he's based on a duck. I think that's quite cute. Mm. Like, you saw the the concept art and one of them was just a rubber duck. I have a rubber duck that's also like Mozart. Does it... Wow. Also look I like got a it drawing? in Salzburg. No, I... it just looks like a rubber duck that okay. looks like Mozart. Okay. I used to have a rubber duck that uh, looked like Sherlock Holmes, and I called it oh. Sherduck Holmes. <laughs> I call mine Amaduckus. Oh, good. <laughs> Too many good. revelations <laughs> happening in this, uh, good. in this episode. No, it was a good trip. I already talked about the episode nine stuff on, yes, our, you did. on our breakdown trailer special. And that is uh, out now, and you can listen to it as you wish. It is, indeed. I was also some Mandalorian stuff, which was fun, and, mm-hmm. and no one got to see that because they cut the footage from the live stream. So I had Werner Herzog in it. Billy D. Williams was in it. Yeah, that actually she looks pretty good. I'm very happy that Werner Herzog is in it. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, as an Imperial officer. Is it true? It is. is it true that Werner Herzog says the word parsec? I believe he does, yes. That's just <laughs> the greatest. He sends the Mandalorian on a uh, on a trip to pick up a person. 
In what context does he use parsec? This is important. Oh, that's a very good point. I don't remember. The, fut- ah. the futility of the parsec. No, I think, uh, yes, it's just like that. Is, is he t- using it in terms of time or distance? That's the question, mm. isn't it? He's Van der Hulse. I'm Wh- sure he got it Whichever right. way we're all going to die in life is meaningless. <laughs> it's very <laughs> true. His character will explain that in detail. The nihilism well, was thanks, implicit. Thanks for that, Werner. Uh, that's great. Uh, there was also a Phantom Menace 20th anniversary celebration slash apology panel. Uh, <laughs> with where with they, uh, Ahmed Best, right? With Ahmed Best. No, but Who's this got- is why it was relevant so yeah. it was on the one hand it was banging on about Phantom Menace but Ahmed Best who famously doesn't really do these sort of things he had such a horrific time mm. after I mean he's, he's written about it like contemplating mm. suicide like it's really dark like he had a horrible time from the fandom and he came out and was embraced really warmly Aww. and like everyone in the room was incredibly enthusiastic and said how much they loved him and actually I think it was like almost a healing process for him mm. with Star Wars mm. uh in many ways, it's ironic because these are the same fuckers that hounded him off the internet in the first place and now feel really bad about it. Well, but in fairness, it's been 20 years. This is probably a new generation. Of fuckers. Of non-fuckers. Of people who were so small when they saw The Phantom Menace that that was their story. A lot of the fuckers were middle-aged. I think okay. <laughs> it's yeah, definitely a contingent of the same but people. But there is, now, there is an outpouring of Gungan, Gungan love. Yeah. I yeah. feel it. Um, He's been re-evaluated, I think. Ollie Gibbs, our former designer, was leading that at the forefront. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um Justice for Jar Jar. But yeah, I think it's only a matter of time before we get a Disney Plus Gungan oh, animated that, series. That it's going to happen, guys. It's going to be amazing. But no, that must have been nice for Armour Best. He's a yeah. lovely guy. Yeah, he is. He, he's a dude. And we had a discussion. I was telling you to go shopping and buy geek stuff. Did you buy any geek stuff? I may or may not have some Han Solo themed boxer shoes. shorts. <laughs> boxer shorts, no. <laughs> I, I may or may not have some Han Solo themed shoes. Excellent. Young or old Han Solo? Uh, actually, I, they're quite abstract, so it's more implied. Like, you, Unless you were a nerd, you wouldn't know they were Solo okay. shoes. That's my favourite kind. Yeah, it's, like, like, it's yeah. quite subtle. It's mm. got sort of a Corellian texturing, if you will. <laughs> oh, uh, good God. <laughs> but yeah, so I got that and uh, a few other bits and bobs. I picked up some posters and whatnot, just nonsense that people were throwing at me. Then I did a Darth Vader VR thing while I was there. Ooh. Where I got to meet Darth Vader in VR. That wasn't intimidating at all. Awesome. But yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was good. Good. It was a good trip. Good. Although I missed a valuable opportunity to reenact many scenes from films, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I walked past the fucking art gallery. No. It didn't occur to me to go in and take pictures of myself. You fool. Yeah. All I ever did, the closest I ever came, was I went and had a pizza under the name Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago, and that was that was basically it. Okay, three hours into the podcast, I think it's time for a question. And this one, unbelievably, appears to come from email. We have actually checked the inbox. We so. have not. Well, I, I don't know. It looks like an email to me. So. We don't have one. So here it is. Uh, Hi, Pod. With Avengers Endgame upon us. Is it? God, I hadn't noticed. Many of us would have bought tickets for an Infinity War Endgame double bill with Endgame starting at midnight on the opening day. I have. Anyway, um, have any of you seen similar opening day midnight double bills? And if so, what advice do you have? What is the best way to ensure that you are awake when Endgame starts? And what future releases would you want a midnight screening for? That comes from Jason John. Yeah, it's a tricky one because I want to be fresh for the first. If I'm really looking forward to a film, I don't want to see it at midnight and I mm. definitely don't want to see it after another really long film. So Endgame, as much as I want to see them both together, back to back on a big screen, and I'm sure I will, I don't want that to be my first experience Interesting. Of it. Okay. So okay. I am going in fresh. But yeah, I don't know. Have you guys done that? I did it last year actually for Infinity War. 
I didn't do a double bill. You didn't watch all 20, <laughs> 10 years of Marvel before? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't do a double bill last year, although I will be this year. I will be watching Infinity War beforehand. I'm basically doing exactly this. But it won't be my first showing because I will have seen it the previous night at the press screening. So in terms of advice, I would say you've got to time your drinking really, really well. You want to stop drinking about an hour before the film is due to start so you can have that final pee before it starts. And then you only want to start drinking seriously again in the last hour of the film. You don't want to be sitting there, you know, busting for a wee. You don't. For the full last hour. No, you don't. It's, it's, happen- it's happened to all of us, right? It has, I-, yeah. I remember going to the multimedia screening of Poseidon, and obviously oh, it's about a ship sinking, so they gave us loads of free water, mm-hmm. just big litre bottles just like of water. Seawater. So, yeah, regular, regular water, fortunately. So I like downed all this water, and then I got trapped. Oh. Um, and then it's a film about water, so you don't want to be needing a pee no. while watching Poseidon, or indeed ever watching Poseidon under any circumstances whatsoever, <laughs> but especially not, because there's just water torrents of it everywhere, and you're like, that yeah. was a bad day. King Kong, it was King Kong for me. I, I'd had some kind of grande frapper whatever beforehand, and and it was I was really loving that film. I really, really loved it. I didn't want to move it, and we were in great seats, like middle of the front row of I the remember. balcony. It was great, wasn't it? Mm. But there was no way I was getting up and saying excuse me to 40 people to get out, so... Uh, that's a film that's not in a rush to end as well. It's not. It's not. No. It's not in a rush to start. I noticed. Yeah. It's like an hour on a boat, then yeah. an hour on the island, which is the best bit with the dinosaurs. Yeah. And then New York goes on forever as well. So that's a tough one to need the luge. I still love it, though. It's a great but, film. But yeah, it was a painful last hour, let's just say. I'm sure I have shared this on the podcast before, but my great urinary debacle with cinema <laughs> was, uh, was Star Trek Generations. Where I need, I was, I was drinking something and I needed a wee and I had to go out and have a wee and I missed the whole stellar cartography sequence. And frankly, no, oh. I was re- I, no, but th- this was a watershed moment for me, no pun intended. Since that day, mm-hmm. I now don't consume any liquid in the run up to any film. And I, if I have water with me in the cinema, I won't start drinking it until two thirds of the way through. That's it. Because yeah. under no circumstances will I ever ever walk out of a film again. Exactly. I mean, you can you can have some gums, some fruity gums with you. That'll mm. keep the sort of, you know, the saliva going around in your mouth. Yeah, just something like that. Something fine. like that. But, but you've got to consider yeah. this. Yeah. You, yeah. you have you do have to plan. You have to. And yeah. also, also like, because often if you go into a press screening, like maybe the doors will open an hour before the film starts, you know, mm. sitting there. You know, if you're going to go to the loo beforehand, which you should, you have to wait until realistically 10 minutes before it starts. That's especially correct. if it's the length of Endgame. Mm. Yeah. So you're absolutely empty. Yep. When it begins. <laughs> Is this too much information? During Endgame, I've worked out a system. So every time the Avengers get an Infinity uh, Stone back, I will have a sip of beverage. <laughs> and when they enter yeah. the quantum realm, I will have some popcorn. Okay, that seems fair. Wow. That's a good, that's a that's good game. So, we may have strayed from the subject. Yeah, what was the question? We <laughs> well, it was, it was about midnight screenings in general. Yeah. So are they, you know, do, do we do them? No. What, which ones have we been to? Under no circumstances ever should anyone go to a midnight screening. I'm, I take a very, very dim view of wow. this whole, this whole, like, cinema as endurance test thing. Like, in the same way, like, I, I can't be dealing with marathons either. It's like, when you have a marathon screening, you ruin every single film in that marathon. Don't do it. Savor them. Watch them properly. Like, if you watch Infinity War before Endgame, and Endgame isn't starting until midnight you're yeah. going into it tired you've ruined the film well done not necessarily because if you've if you've had a little disco nap after work before going to Infinity War for example you might be relatively fresh Perhaps. who can nap after Infinity War come on no before Infinity War or before who yeah. can nap before Infinity War if you War? nap after you're going to miss Endgame aren't you well no I think oh. I think there's a break in between I think there is it's not a seven hour break though, is it? No, that's true. That's yeah. true. Um, I mean, you've you are a veteran of marathons. I've done a bunch. Of, I've respect, done a bunch of marathons. Yeah. I've done. Yeah, I've done a Bondathon. I've course. done a twenty four entire C 
season in one Oof. go, which almost killed me, syncing up to the time in the show. Wow. Uh, but yeah, cinema-wise, I agree with you, James. If they started at midday, like the Prince Charles Cinema does amazing marathons. Mm. They're doing an Arnie one, I think, this weekend. And I would love to go to some of them, but they start at midnight. Hang on. You did a 24 marathon syncing up to the time of the show. Yes. It doesn't happen in real time because there are ad breaks. So how did that work? Well, did we you fa- pause it during the ad breaks? I'm glad you asked. We factored in a 40-minute <laughs> break per episode where we had coffee and basically rubbed caffeine into our eyeballs. But yeah, we factored that in. So we would, okay. ho- we would wait until it was on the hour and then sync it back up again. I just, but the thing is that can't be fun because it's just like at the end of it, you're t- like, so Game of Thrones, they're broadcasting. Sky is simulcasting it so you can watch it at 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. But Game of Thrones is amazing. I'm not watching it at 2 o'clock in the morning when I'm tired and just want to go to sleep that's madness i will admit so i went to see infinity war midnight last year and i will admit to getting really frustrated that they had exactly the same number of ads and trailers before the film and that those didn't start until midnight like yeah. those could have started mm. that, at eleven forty-three yeah, or something I agree with you on that that would have been much much better so i had a bit of an issue with that and by the end because i had already seen it last year i mm. didn't stay for the end credits sting like oh, that's Helen, how tired i cheat. was i know um, yeah. But having said that, I saw Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring at a midnight screening, day of release. Could not have been more excited. The entire cinema could not have been more excited. And it is one of the great viewing experiences of my life. So I feel like if you are sufficiently rested, mm. it can be amazing. Yeah, I d- I've done the extended edition trilogy of Lord of the Rings at midnight all the way through the night. That was Return of the King gets quite... That would get, yeah, that would get <sighs> You've got to be begging for death by the end of that, haven't you? <laughs> by the time you get to the 18 goodbyes at the end, you're like crawling on the floor out of there. And I've also done a time travel all-nighter. Both of these were the BFI IMAX, and I don't recommend watching four time travel films starting at midnight. <laughs> so it was, um, it was Terminator 2, Back to the Future Part 2, Highlander, Ooh. and then it finished with 12 Monkeys, which I think Ooh, was not the best that's sequencing. Not the, yeah, no, that's not the because best Because at like five in the morning, trying to figure out what's going on in 12 yeah. Monkeys, yeah, it, no. It's tough. You don't, don't need know. you don't need five in the morning, Gilliam. That's that's yeah, that's, rough. No, that's that's tough. Wow. So there was advice in there somewhere. I'm pretty sure for midnight screenings, but that don't is our it. advice. Don't drink any <laughs> beverage ever. Yeah, just just time your beverages. That's the main thing. Just just be really really careful of that. I would say. Or bring a bucket. And obviously caffeine. That goes without saying. Coffee and whatever form you take it. You've that just given is the way conflicting advice. What? Mind no. your beverages, but also caffeine. But also, I mean, you could have caffeine, like, you could have chocolate-covered cocoa beans. You could. Chocolate-covered cocoa beans is what we suggest. No, the other ones. Coffee beans. I remember words. <laughs> I can do words. Okay, if you would like to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast, you can do so via Twitter. We are at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or we might not see it. Facebook, we are also at Empire Magazine. And email, we're podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, so uh, just while we're on the subject of exciting screenings at exciting cinemas, uh, we should let you know that during the month of May, we are teaming up with Picture House to run a sort of season of science fiction classics. It's all to celebrate our 30th birthday, which is, of course, this year. And we are doing a fantastic run of films. We have J.J. Abrams' Super 8 is kicking things off on the 4th of May. We're doing Aliens. We're doing First Man. We're doing Blade Runner 2049. We're doing Gravity in 3D towards the end of the month. It's going to be absolutely amazing. And you can find out more at empireonline.com slash picturehouse. It's also going to be a very affordable rate. It's £8.00. Or if you're a subscriber, you can get in for a fiver. Wow. You cannot say fairer than that. Brilliant, brilliant films. So look out for those. As I say, it's empireonline.com slash picturehouse. So get after it. Mm. 
Okay, we're going to give our voices a rest for a minute because it's time, I think, for an interview break. Andrew Scott, for it is he, broke through into the mainstream consciousness as Sherlock's fiendish Moriarty, matching wits with Benedict Cumberbatch to deadly effect. Of late, he's been playing a sweary priest, in fact, the sweariest priest, I would say, since Father Jack in Fleabag. And this week, he's back on the big screen playing what the Americans call a garbage man who starts investigating a missing person case in Steel Country. So we sent Chris along to find out more. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star of Steel Country, Andrew Scott. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. We were just having a little discussion beforehand about how you've detected a little hint of American in my accent. Yes, jeez. I don't know where you got that from. I but, don't know where uh, you got that from. <laughs> where did you get that <laughs> idea, pal? You know that uh, what about yourself over the years? Has your accent changed and waxed and waned? Do you know what? It, I think it kind of hasn't. Okay. Uh, Is that a conscious decision to hold on to your accent? Not, I don't know. It's a really weird thing with accents, isn't it? Like, um... I, because I've got friends who've lived in London for Irish friends who've lived in London, and they, you know, they just sort of speak like that now. And you're like, um, you know, you're from Still Oregon in Dublin. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Um, but no, my accent seemed to have sort of. I think maybe because I change it so much. Yeah. Uh, maybe less so than I used to. I used to sort of want to change my accent an awful lot in films and TV uh-huh. and stage, but now I'm kind of much more into if I can not changing my accent. Yeah. I don't know what that is. I think it's about, I think maybe when you're a young actor, you sort of think, okay, I'll just get as far away from myself as possible. And that's what acting is. Do you find it hard to go back to yourself in a, in a way? When you're changing your accent, especially as a, as a, as a young actor, mm. do you find that sometimes it's difficult to go back and remember kind of who you are and who your ac- what your accent is? Well, I think, yeah, I think you sort of when you're younger, you, you feel like the more effort you're putting into, yeah. <laughs> into acting, you know, if I'm sort of completely transforming myself, that's what acting is. And, I, you know, the older I get, the more I realise that's actually not what it is. What, what it is is exploring different, as many different parts of yourself uh-huh. as you are. And I do kind of think that the better you know you are the better you know yourself the better you are as an actor I really do think that's true before I thought because I mean, of course there's a lot of completely lunatics who are actors yeah. and that provides a certain gateway to a particular type of character but I think if you want to kind of sweep the board of characters I think the more you're sort of comfortable with yourself and I, I do kind of think as well the better the actor usually the nicer they are and, and, and also sometimes success can be very good for actors you know okay you know what i mean like yeah. some, some of the people who aren't difficult to work with or any of that there there are the ones at the real top of their game are always pretty fantastic to work with too so whenever success visited you how did you deal i've with always that? been a nightmare <laughs> full tilt diva <laughs> just yeah full tilt diva yeah and that's you not going to change demand water <laughs> i did yeah you know. yeah Which i mean i may have asked is, you would you like a water yes, and i distinctly remember saying room temperature water and this is <laughs> Below room temperature. I know. I, I'm, I'm. I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's not as sorry as you will be. <laughs> <laughs> you did slap me around a little well, bit off mic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's just for starters. <laughs> In an American accent. In an American. Yeah. Take that, <laughs> you take goddamn gee whiz, Willikers, you little movie fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So when you did become successful, though, I imagine, especially say, for example post-Sherlock that yeah, first, yeah, that first yeah. flush of post-Sherlock mm. uh, fame for you where people are stopping you in the street yeah. what's that like for you? How do you how do you deal with that without um, becoming a giant asshole? yeah it's a re- it's a re- what's been sort of important for me is not to um, because you know being Irish uh, being clubbable and friendly and all that kind of stuff is kind of 
part of the culture. It's definitely within me. And I like people. I like talking to people. So one of the big decisions I made was that I wasn't going to do social media because actually, in a way, if you're doing Twitter and having to field lots of you know, horrendous comments or crazy comments or even nice comments or Instagram as it was, then, or, you know, whatever it is. And then you're talking to people on the street and you're doing all the selfie thing as well. It could just like take over your life and you start to yeah. sort of resent people. And I really don't want to start resenting people because, you know, for the most part, I kind of like them. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, for the most part. For the most part. So <laughs> I decided I wasn't going to do any of that kind of stuff. And so in a way, it sort of frees me up to sort of talk to people and you get a sort of better vibe of uh, what the person is like. And also you're able to ask them questions back. You know, you're able to sort of go, so, you know, you have a proper, I think it was quite weird when you become more uh, well-known or whatever, is that you're yeah. asked an awful lot of questions and you, you you never get to ask questions yourself. Ask me anything. I am an open book. Um, why the fuck did you not get me <laughs> room temperature water, you movie fuck? <laughs> a, it was all I had. B, I didn't realise you would get so violent so quickly. Well, that was your big mistake. <laughs> that was that was pretty much it. That was pretty much it. And I apologise and it won't happen again. Okay, Largely because right. I suspect I'm going to be in traction. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You don't have a future. <laughs> well, this has been fun. This Thanks for coming fun. in, Andrew. This has been this has been really really great. Fun for you. Yeah. Uh, so, and Steel Country is available. Now. Yeah, exactly. Plug <laughs> the movie. <laughs> Plug the goddamn movie before you go. Before yeah, you so die. We should talk about your 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 work in Steel Country. It's a fantastic film, and you're great in it. And uh, um, but it does go back to that idea that you were talking about at the beginning about uh, about accents and changing yourself. And, yeah. And yeah. Because this character Don. Yeah, it's very different. Um, different very yeah. different. Yeah, and I think I was, I was definitely having been to a certain degree in villain uh, territory. I sort of didn't want to pl- sort of play that note again. I just didn't mm. want to do it. And uh, so this is a, Donald is very very vulnerable um, character. I would describe him as non sort of neurotypical. I've been kind of reluctant. People have said, is he, you know, you know, has he got Asperger's or is he on the autistic scale? I was kind of uh, quite reluctant to diagnose the character kind of simply because he's very neglected character. That's kind of the story of the character. The film is that there's a boy who's murdered and they in a small town and um, they're investigative team just don't seem to care they just completely neglect the case and for some reason I think um, this neglected man who's a bin man a very disenfranchised man in middle America I kind of unconsciously I think takes this young dead boy's side and in some ways sort of standing up for himself un, uh, you know, unconsciously by standing up for this boy and going why aren't you doing that why aren't you doing that and becoming slightly obsessive because I think he's been neglected himself and I think Part of that neglect would be that people wouldn't have cared whether whether he was mm. on the autistic scale, wouldn't have cared to diagnose him, or wouldn't have had the foresight to diagnose him himself. So, um, I think you know, there's a lot of people who are neurotypical who've got a lot of different ways of thinking. Yeah, and in exactly the same way, people who are non-neurotypical have a very different ways of thinking there's somebody with Asperger's syndrome kind of a completely different uh, way of thinking than another person with Asperger's Mm -hmm, syndrome mm -hmm. is the same way people who are neurotypical do so it was kind of um, really really interesting character in in that sense and a very kind of new departure for me in my first American indie film and whatever how did they come your way Um, well it's uh, the the producer of the King's Speech Garrett Unwin um, 
called me and uh, we went and had a meeting and we had a really nice initial uh, conversation about it and uh, yeah like with all independent films it takes a while to get going and um, yeah then we went on our little adventure we shot it in Griffin Georgia which is quite a bleak place in just outside Atlanta in Georgia and that was very helpful because it's no there's they literally had hardly any pavements there was just McDonald's and you know there's bleak guns and Trump signs everywhere and mm. uh, I bought all my all my costumes in Walmart and it was great I pretended it's method that I, I just had ice cream basically for breakfast for <laughs> six weeks pretended I was, was um, and lunch and dinner yeah exactly <laughs> yeah well yeah so um so yeah it was it was a real experience seeing America, particularly yeah. around that time, it's just when Trump kind of came to power. And yeah, so I was going to say, when 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 did you shoot this? It was about just after. It was about maybe it was about a year and a half ago now. Okay. Yeah. Um, and as a as an outsider, as a, as an Irishman going into that that situation, you know, how did the locals take to you and the production? Yeah. You know, and was, what were your observations? Well, of my that? observations really were that I understood why they felt it felt so far away from liberal Washington. You know, I mm. understood why people felt. Um, angry uh, yeah angry yeah. and uh, kind of very strangely apathetic that's what it was I mean I met absolutely beautiful gorgeous people as you do um, but there was a strange political sort of apathy about I was asking them about voting for Trump and just a lot of people just didn't vote and I think that's the real sinister thing which sort of the film touches on which is you know just a sort of like what are you doing come on you can't just not it's the lack of questioning which is sort of frightening you know but um yeah i was i i had a good time but it was um i was glad it wasn't for too long you know mm. and there's something about there's a there's a restlessness inside donny as he begins to investigate yeah. this crime that, yeah. that, that that i think is very very interesting and there's this this idea that was explored i don't know whether you saw bart layton's american animals but this i haven't seen american animals oh in, my yeah. god it's so good you should check yeah, it out it's incredible that's the one that young irish actor barry keown is in it right barry keown. Yeah, yeah, indeed. He's, such a, he's such a star oh my god he's so good mm, and yeah. the, the, the film is terrific but there's it's one of those films that kind of examines not the restlessness of young people growing up in America, but the kind of the fact that they don't feel that there's anything to their lives, and so mm. sometimes they maybe invent a purpose for themselves. Yeah, right. Because yeah. they're directionless. Because there's Absolutely. nothing at the end of at yeah. the end of it all. And Donny, I feel a little bit. Yes, there's maybe a I little think bit that's of really that in, true. Donny. Yeah, he's got no father figure. His father has died. Um, he's been neglected and kind of borderline abused. He's um, got very few people to love. So. I don't think he has the kind of self-confidence or the self-worth to stand up for himself. Mm. But when this little boy is um, just disappears and then they go, yeah, well, this is what happened. And then they just move on. I mm. think it's definitely um, accidental. I don't think he's even that, 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 that he becomes obsessed. And then it, like those things, you find that things more in, and uh, it just sort of just takes over his life. And uh, uh, yeah, I think that's what happens if you suppress people in that way they rise up and in very mm. very sinister ways mm. yeah absolutely you obviously you you divide your time obviously between the, the big screen the small screen and the stage yeah. as well yeah. is there a grand plan in place no okay <laughs> <laughs> no there absolutely isn't okay that's good to know <laughs> in a word uh, no there isn't a grand plan apart from doing the thing that you just haven't done you know what I mean like you uh-huh. you know I, I, I used to act when I was a kid not like professionally but I I've always maintained that to maintain the playfulness about acting to play one particular type of thing yeah. has never been a 
too much interest to me. In fact, when it seems to be going down that road, I always kind of want to veer off somewhere else, you know. Yeah. Um, and I suppose maybe that's why I like moving between genres and genres within genres. We Last year we were doing, or the year before we did some Shakespeare and playing Hamlet and then, mm. you know, we're going to do a bit, a bit more stage this year, but comedy, but Anel Coward and, and, and exactly the same way. I love the idea of working on a, a big budget films. I think it's really fun. Um, but then the independent films and then TV is such a such a yeah. golden age for television at the moment. And um, but how, how, so there's no grand plan in place. But how do you decide what comes next for you? So if you say, for example, you know, you, you go Hamlet. Mm. There's Fleabag as well, yeah. obviously. Then you're yeah. saying Noel Coward as well. Yeah. So do you decide? Okay, I want to do a comedy and then put the feelers out there, or does something come your way? I, I kind of I think that's it. I think I kind of go. Yeah, I'd like to definitely go down. I've always wanted to play. Uh, I've always found romantic comedy very uh, appealing, uh-huh. but for some reason. That sort of eluded me a little bit, and I was always kind of saying that's that's something that's part. There's a lot of things that aren't within my remit, but that is. Um, so, when Fleabag came about, for example, I was really excited because chiefly the thing that attracts me has always been. I think when I was quite young, um, I used to work at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin when I was about nineteen and twenty, and I got oh, quite okay. addicted to good writing. Yeah, and I'm very grateful for the fact that I did sort of small Irish independent films. I always had films and TV going on you know even right from the get go but I got kind of addicted to really good writing so that's what I would definitely look for you go someone who's got a bit of an autograph that's a completely unique there's something about that that's just unique so romantic comedy coupled with somebody like Phoebe who has got such a unique voice um, who I worked with 10 years ago in the theatre and Mm. knew of her spirit obviously I'd seen Fleabag the first series Mm. that just seemed like a an amazing opportunity and I signed on to do that Phoebe and I had a big conversation about it last summer and uh, I said yes to it before I'd even read any any scripts <laughs> yeah because she because you just you go with a vibe don't you you go, yeah. with a, you go with a vibe and then the scripts turn out to be kind of okay <laughs> passable, passable <laughs> barely yeah, passable yeah. but I mean if somebody like Phoebe who's able to write about a fox breaking into a toilet of a train <laughs> and then break your heart and then talk about yeah. how your hair looks amazing on a on the day of your mother's funeral I mean that's yeah. just th- th- all those things contained in a 25 minute episode I mean that's yeah she's incredible it's, in, it's, yeah. To- it's totally it's, it's totally unique and, um, and, and I'm very grateful that she saw that yeah. part of me and me because you know um, it was definitely something that kind of needed and wanted to be expressed yeah because you mentioned there you didn't want to be kind of pigeonholed into the villain thing yeah the last time we spoke was for Empire Magazine and was for Spectre yeah and was there even uh, at the time I mean it's a Bond film Mm. so I guess you know you don't say no to a Bond film but were you wary of that role as well given I think we can spoil Spectre three years down the line absolutely that there's a bad guy role as well yeah Uh, I was if I'm honest I was I, I you know you're you're uh, you go into that, and it's incredibly exciting uh, thing to be involved in. And I love Sam. Sam and uh, Mendes uh, had directed me in the theatre, and there were my pals are in Ben Wisher was a great pal of mine, and lots of you know D- Daniel had done lots of theatre, and it felt Ray Fines and Roy Kinnear and all these amazing people. But yeah, to a certain extent, I was a little wary of. Well, I suppose I didn't feel that for me it was a great stretch at the time. But sometimes you know it's okay to. Um, to not stretch yourself as an actor, and you you know you sort of try your best, and it was it was it was a wonderful experience, and mm. 
you know, it afforded me things that allow me to do other things. Yeah. And, you know, um, I try with those things not to think, th- think on them too deeply. I would say that most of my joyful sort of things that I'll remember on my deathbed, if I remember anything, <laughs> will, will be the more independent stuff, yeah. you know. But I love the idea of, I don't believe in high art and low art and stuff. I love when there's a big success, box office wise, for things that are intelligent, because I don't think mm. those things have to be mutually exclusive. I really don't. Absolutely. And that's what's happening in t- TV now. I mean, that's really, TV is leading it. We have something like Fleabag or, you know, really intelligent stuff yeah. that people are really, really watching. Absolutely. You know, Something like Dairy Girls. And, yeah, you know, Dairy Girls. Worried, worried what about Dairy Girls? Amazing. Bit of a golden age at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, intelligent, big budget filmmaking, yeah. you're work, about to work with Mr. Mendes again? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're doing um, a film called 1917, which is set in World War One, <laughs> And um, without giving the game away too much, it's a very personal story to to Sam mm-hmm. and uh, the scale of it is pretty enormous and uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> can you say anything about who well, you play I, or? Uh, I play a member of the army <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've heard things about what Sam may be attempting in this movie that, that, yeah 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 well it's very very stylistically exciting um, we'll leave it there for the time being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's. I think it'll be really unique. And uh, uh, yeah, it's got all these people. Obviously, Benedict is in it, which is um, yeah. and Colin Firth, and you know, made Mark Strong and uh, Richard. When, when do you start in that? I've started already. You started. Yeah, yeah. Do they know you're here? Huh? Do they know you're here? They are here. They're filming. <laughs> time travel. Yeah, exactly. It's time travel as yeah, well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. I knew I'd get out of you eventually. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And um, and have you brought any of your private Ryan experience to bear on, on this? <laughs> Do you know what? It's so weird that I've been in so many. I, I think I told you before they used to. No, it was on Band of Brothers. I was in Band of Brothers. Yes. And they used to call me the reluctant soldier. <laughs> There he is, there's a reluctant soldier. Because I was like, oh, God, this is so tedious. (laughs) All that stuff. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, I definitely am wearing a slightly different shade of green. Uh Uh-huh, okay. Um, uh, I can tell you that. It's a little bit more mossy. Uh Um, Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, I've been in in a few war things now. It's kind of funny. Because I'm I'm a lover, not a fighter. (laughs) (laughs) Let's throw that back out at the world. Andrew Scott wants to do a romantic comedy. Yeah, absolutely. On the big screen. I can see you in a remake of While You Were Sleeping. You in the Sandra Bullock role. Absolutely. Let's make this happen. I'll play Sandy's part any any day of the week. Any day of the week. Fantastic. Andrew Scott, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, man. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, I apologise again for the water. All right, so time for some moving news. Um, we've, we've mentioned Star Wars already, but let's talk about some of the news mm. that have emerged this week about Knights of the Old Republic, which even I, not having played the game, think is quite an intriguing proposition. But James, as our resident expert, please tell us more. What's really funny is, and I've just, I was literally just reading this story on the site, we've quoted MTV who ran this story, and I realised I was standing next to MTV when Cathy Kennedy had this conversation with them, so I remember it word for word. They'd essentially said, you know what, you're going to do something in Knights of the Old Republic, and she said, we talk about it all the time, we are currently putting together something to look at. So she's not said something's going into production. Okay. She said they're kicking around an idea which they're then going to look at, so it's one of the possibilities. However, as you say, yes, it's a very exciting sort of period that hasn't really been explored outside mm-hmm. that game and its sequel, and you know, I guess in the, in the comics and novels sure. and whatnot. She mentioned 
they're exploring all sorts of areas. We don't know yet what Ryan Johnson's trilogy is going to be. We don't know what David Benioff and Dan Weiss's trilogy is going to be. So there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Mm. But yeah, I, I'm I'm glad they're looking at this. I think, to be honest, they're looking at everything. But yeah, this is something the fans definitely want. And this is something that we've talked about before as being a, a, maybe a bit of a more fertile ground yeah. than something like Solo. Because, you know, I've certainly... I know I've been very on record as saying I don't need to know where Han Solo specifically came from. I Absolutely. love him as he is. But I am interested in what happened 3,000 years ago or whatever it is yeah. because it gives you more space to work with. It's still connected. It's still in the same universe. Yeah. But it's not, you know, we're not sitting there the whole time going, oh, we know what's going to happen to him. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's you a know. very different sort of playground mm. to sort of mess around in. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be very interested in seeing this. And I think that it will help them deal with one of the biggest problems, which is how do you differentiate between Star Wars things, because if you deviate too far from it, it's not Star Wars anymore. Mm-hmm. So you're in a slightly difficult area there. Whereas this is Star Wars, but also a very different Star Wars. So yeah. same races, it's still got lightsabers, it's still got all sorts of key elements, but also different. You're also not tied into all of this, only two there are, a master and an apprentice, and all that you know, latter-day Jedi stuff that George introduced. This, is a, this has a sort of different underpinning mythology. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I'm all for Old Republic Knights. Mm. Is that what we're... Is that what we're calling it? No, it's Knights of the Old Republic. Thank you. <laughs> it was really distressing in there for a minute. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about some trailers because we've had a couple of interesting trailers this week. But shall we start with the ridiculous one? Shall we start with Hobbs and Shaw? Ridiculous. Come on, Helen. Sorry. It was gritty and realistic <laughs> and uh, maybe about three minutes too long. But um, yeah, what did you think of it? I would say it's it, it's a really long trailer to be to be that full of action beats I feel like we maybe could have done with a few less, if anything. It was slightly exhausting. Mm. But yeah, they showcased a lot of different action scenes in our new issue coming up. I don't think it's a spoiler to say we we have a bit of an article on a scene near the end of the film where they're on an island and you meet Hobbs, uh, Dwayne Johnson's extended family, including his parents, and they have a large sort of Samoan, quite a sweaty wrestle, basically. Um, okay. They haven't got weapons, so they have to just hit each other with fists. Uh, so you get a bit of that in the trailer, but you also get like a sort of scene in a prison or a lab, the bit where they're, they're just punching. There's a lot of punching in this there's trailer. There's a lot of there? punching. There's, there's a supreme amount of punching. And then towards the end of the trailer, it just goes batshit crazy and has <laughs> them driving some kind of monster truck while bringing a helicopter. It just goes full Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, it was a bit too long. Some of the one-liners didn't quite work. The bit where Jason Statham is slamming the guy's head into the the ID pad. I mm-hmm. thought it should have opened it on the third go. but I do too. That was exactly... I was expecting that to happen. Needed a punchline. Yeah. <laughs> Punch. <laughs> Punch. Yeah. 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 Headbutt line. But, I mean, you know, it does look every bit as ridiculous as I hoped this film would be. So, in that respect, it, it certainly seems to be delivering. And Idris Elba describes himself as Black Superman. And then The Rock agrees with him. The Rock agrees and repeats it. Yeah. So, yeah, so. James, you were, you were less enthusiastic. You could say that. <laughs> I did not enjoy it. It has the whiff of comedy about it, and you know how I feel about that kind of thing. Yeah, it feels to me like, and this is clearly an intentional choice, that like the Fast and Furious, which started out as a f- film series, it took itself very seriously, like it was a very much an action thriller, and then the comedy and the absurdity has dialed up with each instalment, but it is still at its heart an action film that is comedic, whereas this is a comedy. 
Like certainly mm. from the trailer, it seems like a comedy with action rather than an action film with comedy. I, and for me, that's unacceptable. I agree with you in a way that yeah, the Fast and Furious films are kind of at their best when you're not sure whether they're trying yeah, to be funny or not. Exactly yeah. that. You know, when yeah. Vin Diesel's you know living life half a quarter of a mile at a time and stuff, yeah. you you kind of suspect he's not joking, <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah. hilarious. Well, you get the impression often from that that everyone is in on the joke except Vin Diesel. But um, mm. I think on this one, they're everyone like it's clearly a, a, a joke. You know, they're all in on it. They're having fun with it, and that's fine. But it just there's it it courts absurdity too overtly for me like i need i need a degree of at least the <laughs> pretense of subtlety uh and you need wasn't plausibly any. deniable exactly I, yeah. I i love it absurdity. i think it's at its best where it's clearly absurd and it's clearly ridiculous and it's hilarious but they can turn to camera at any point and say no we're making a serious film here and sell that do you know what i mean they can <laughs> yeah. sell that and you can't i think this. there's definitely a space for this film though because I mean, action films are getting more and more kind of serious and grim and the morphology even something like john wick which mm. is ridiculous is now getting quite taking itself quite seriously oh but i love the mythology and- John Wick is is, is brilliant, but there's definitely room for just a total cheesy, full-on popcorn, ridiculous, overblown action movie. I'm I'm down for it. It's the Tango and Cash of this summer. Come on. (laughs) It it may literally be that, yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Otherwise, in trailer news this week, we had a Dark Phoenix trailer that amps up the sort of Dark Phoenix threat quite a lot. Anybody, you know, more swayed on this one either way? Mm. Still Christmas Eve? I'm cautiously optimistic about this film. I don't think it's going to be a bad film. I think it's going to be infinitely better than Apocalypse, but yeah. that's a really low bar to so clear. Bu- so low. Um, but there's a there's a bittersweet tang to this because this is the last of these X Men films, uh, so that makes me a little bit sad. I'm very intrigued. Like I'm I'm looking forward to it. The thing I did think about Dark Phoenix is it felt like Jennifer Lawrence was embracing the sweet kiss of being killed off in this franchise. Like, you know, she yeah. just, it, there was there was a sense of weird relief all around there. Well, also, if you like. listen really carefully and turn down the music track, you can hear her going, I'm free! Free! <laughs> Come on, kill me! Kill me! Kill me, do it now! <laughs> yeah, kill me! Yeah. Speaking of people who are hard to kill, this is a terrible segue. <sighs> Let's talk about Master Chief. I'm aware of Halo. I'm aware it's a thing. Um, the physics of the Halo world kind of annoyed me because it you, seemed... Uh, do you mean uh, John 117? Yes. For for that is his real name. Yes. He's a clone? He's a Spartan super soldier. Yes. Okay. That sounds familiar. Yeah. I've watched people... It's a ring this. world, isn't it? You're talking about the physics of it. It's a ring world, isn't it? It That's is, the, yeah. Uh, but the, the sun seemed to be in the wrong place for me. So I was, I was yeah, upset so by that. It's an odd one because the halo in this isn't around a sun. Mm. Like, it's just in space. Well, there is... I mean, there's two kinds in the Ian M. Banks books. There's the, the orbital and the other one. And they're both ring worlds, but they work in different ways. So maybe it's the other one. Mm. Anyway, but that always kind of annoyed me about Halo. But it's a ring world, and there's this dude who's a Spartan, and he's fighting people. I don't know the plot. So this is a TV show, and I don't know quite what story it's going to take. Because this has this game series and the surrounding fiction has quite mm. a deep mythology. There is a period in the mythology where they land on a Halo. Yes. So this thing, they crash land on it while being chased by an alien race, another alien race, not the people who built the Halo. Although the best story happens just before that, which is the fall of Reach. Maybe that oh will be goodness. in the series. Yeah, we can right, all hope that it is. Um, but yeah, but the, the thrust of this is that Pablo Schreiber will be the Master Chief, aka John 117. Yeah. Right. And he's the guy from, he was the... Porn Tash from Orange is the New Black. Okay. Or I was going to say, he's the giant leprechaun in American Mad Gods. Sweeney. Yes, yeah. he's that too. So mm. I'm a Sweeney, so I approve of his casting. But... You're an O'Hara. Okay. What are you talking about? I'm also a Sweeney. My mum's a Sweeney. And who, who is kind of showrunner? In this because uh, you know there was a film version that that almost got off the ground that uh, Neil Blomkamp was going to direct and Peter Jackson was yeah, producing was, yeah. and mm. so it's got a really tortured kind of history payload in terms of getting to the screen. So who's yeah. kind of who's looking after it now? It is now Kyle Killen and Stephen King. 
Kyle Killam. Kyle Killen. Killen, yes. Okay. We've also got an Australian newcomer called Yeren Ha, who's a, a newly created character in this universe called Quan Ah. But we don't know much about mm. how that fits into the story. But um, he's described as a shrewd, audacious 16-year-old from the outer colonies who meets the Master Chief at a fateful time for them both. There you go. How exciting. Mm. Okay. Staying on a kind of TV show tip, um, Mike Myers is coming to Netflix. Really? Hopefully not for some kind of hellish love guru <laughs> spin-off. But yeah, we don't know much. We know that he will be playing multiple characters. There's a big shock there. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to see Mike Myers come back. Um, I kind of was waiting for them to announce Austin Powers 4. That seemed like something that's definitely going to happen at some point. But, hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, why not? I hope sure. he plays the uh, the Scottish father from So I Married an Axe Murderer. Oh, what <laughs> if he, he'd Dune! What if he comes back as some kind of all his characters from different films oh. and now it's like some kind of weird Spider-Verse. Oh, it's into He'll the Mayaverse. He'll himself to sleep tonight on his huge pillow! Oh my god. <laughs> okay. I apologise on behalf of all our Scottish listeners. Yeah, th- thank you for that because really. Uh, the Cannes Film Festival opened up its lineup today. Oui, oui. Oh, it's très français. Yeah, très, très, très. Très bien. Très bien. I apologise on behalf of this podcast <laughs> to <all> our French <laughs> listeners. We just apologise to the world. Yeah, we probably <laughs> should. Now, they have interestingly said that this is not necessarily the complete lineup yet. They have gone so far as to say, it suggests essentially that there's some more films coming, which are expected, for example, to include Greta Gerwig's Little Women. And or Quentin Tarantino's mm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it's it's an interesting time. They have managed a whole so far four films by women in competition, which is believe it or not a record equaling number. So I guess that's good. Mm. There's uh, thirteen female directors among the fifty or so announced across all of the selections, but four in competition. But yeah, I mean, the usual kind of suspects are there. Uh, Xavier Dolan is back. Uh, Terence Malick's latest will be there. I think that's the longest film in competition by about an hour. (laughs) Boon Joon-ho is there as well. Pedro Almodovar. So, you know, it kind of looks like Cannes pretty much being Cannes. The most exciting one for me is Jim Jarmusch and the Dead Don't Die. That's the opening film, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's... um the kind of indie zombie film with Bill Murray in it. I, what is that film going to be? I'm... It's a Jarmuschy. It is a Jarmuschy. Yeah. Basically, I'm I'm just super on board with Jim Jarmusch in general, and with pretty much every cast member in general. So I, I mean, feel like I'm this is there. Bill Murray's second zombie film, which is kind of kind of bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm excited for that one. So we shall see. Um, other stuff. John Cena. Mm-hmm. Suicide Squad two. Come on, guys. We don't know who he's playing yet, but we we know that John Cena will play some kind of role. Presumably someone whose power is being invisible. Because, because, oh, because I, you yeah. can't see him. Yeah, okay. This is a wrestling thing, isn't it? <laughs> it you, I never remember this. I know. I don't. Okay, yeah. all right. Did you see that, that was Dave a wrestling Bautista has now officially retired from wrestling? Like he, he lost to Triple H at WrestleMania, and that was his swan song. That was his final match. He's now done. He has left sports entertainment forever. He's hung up his little pant things. It's and a tragedy for he's us done. all. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is a big thing because he, you know, he's been wrestling for a long time, and you know, it's a big deal for him to step out of the ring. As I it mean, were. his film career seems to be going pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I'm not saying he's on the bread line now. I think he's doing very, very well for himself. Yeah. Um, nope. yeah. But anyway. yeah, end of an era. I suppose you're right. That's yeah. absolutely right. So going back to John Cena and actual movie news. Sure. Um, yeah. No, I mean, look, the, the guy managed to star in a good Transformers film, which we didn't know that, that was possible to 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 be a thing. So. You know, we didn't really like the first Suicide Squad. No. It seems like this one's shaping up. Yeah. Idris Elba, John yeah. Cena, like, the cast is getting pretty good. Mm. 
Um, six billion dollar man. Staying yes. in the action thing. Mark well, Wahlberg. actually, there's a Bumblebee kind of relationship yeah, there. Knight. So Travis Knight directed that and is now signed up to direct, it looks like, uh, The Six Billion Dollar Man, which will be Mark Wahlberg yeah. as the former astronaut who gets uh, an upgrade. Yeah, adjusted for inflation. Yeah, I know. It is. I love that it's been adjusted for inflation. Six million. Six really? million will get you a, like a bionic finger these yeah. days. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's a lot, though. That's that's what Forbes estimated the cost of Tony Stark's entire suit at about seven billion dollars each. So, you know, that that's a lot of money. They should have gone for trillion. <laughs> they should have gone for trillion. Maybe that's the sequel. Maybe that that will be the sequel. Um, but yeah, this is like Mark Wahlberg kind of doing a superhero film without doing a superhero film, isn't it? Because he kind of gets upgraded vision and speed and power and all kinds of stuff. Have you seen that Wahlburgers is opening in Covent Garden? Oh my goodness! Amazing. I yeah. I, um, I interviewed I interviewed Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg together last year, and I suggested that he call one of his things on the menu a Peter Burger. Uh, Peter Burger. Did he hit it didn't you, really or? work. I, after I explained it, he said it was really funny and that he was gonna <laughs> and he was gonna make some calls. Uh-huh. So if that happens, then wow. that was squarely me. Okay, all the best jokes have to be explained. I, I think it was it was excruciating. <laughs> So very quick couple just to finish. It looks like uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Michael B. Jordan signing on for Methuselah um, as the the very long-lived dude who's been around for centuries. It now looks like Spider-Man's John Watts will be potentially directing that film, which is good news. And then also there was a little bit of casting from Marvel's The Eternals. Um, So Ma Dong Seok from Train to Busan, and apologies to all our Korean listeners for my pronunciation of his name, he is apparently lined up for The Eternals, which would be great because he's so good in Train to Busan, which if you haven't seen it, just stop everything that's and amazing. go and watch it. It's an incredible film. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good piece of casting, I think. It's, uh, it's exciting to see him jump to American films. One last thing. Tomb Raider 2 yeah. is going to be written by Amy Jump, which is really exciting and it amazing. Is. She's Ben Wheatley's kind of creative partner. She wrote um, Free Fire and High Rise mm-hmm. with him, and, and this is super exciting. It is, because, I mean, Tomb Raider, I thought the casting was fine. I think Alicia Vikander is a really good fit for the role. I just felt the script needed another pass, and I feel mm-hmm. like Amy Jump is the person to get it to a stage of not needing passes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's exciting. Also, there was rum- the rumours this week that Phoebe Waller-Bridge mm-hmm. is uh, polishing up the Bond script. That's right. Which is intriguing. Yes, it is. I mean, I, she could write absolutely anything, and I'd be thrilled to this. I'd be happier if she was Bond, quite frankly. But, that would uh, be amazing. She's great, great writer. Obviously, it's notoriously, shall we say, not female-friendly franchise. So maybe they're trying to address that. And if so, how does that even work, given that the whole concept of it is, you know, he's a misogynistic dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War. And I know that because Judy Dent said so, and she wouldn't lie to me. Judy Dent would never lie to any of us. It is, it is written. It is certain. It is set. Also, just to finish off... The In the Heights cast, you know I've been following this. It has been finalised. Stephanie Beatrice from Brooklyn Nine-Nine has joined this this week. Uh, Dasha Polanco from Orange is the New Black. Daphne Rubin-Vega. They have confirmed Jimmy Smits. It is a huge, huge lineup. I think it's really, really exciting and it's shaping up very, very well. John M. Chu, of course, from Crazy Rich Asians, is set to direct and it's due in theatres next year, so they should be filming really any day now. Ooh. You could say that cast is hitting new heights. You could, except they've been around for a while, those heights. That's true. Cancel yeah. that. 
So that is movie news. We are finishing up. Shall we have another interview? Do you think? I think we should. So Irish director Neil Jordan is one of the most versatile talents around. Um, a very independent voice who can tackle anything from interviews with vampires to biopics of Irish heroes to kind of twisted fairy tales like The Company of Wolves or Undine. This week he brings us a twisty, unusual psychological drama in Greta, which stars Isabel Huppert and Chloe Grace Moretz in a sort of generation-spanning friendship or is it? We sent Chris along to meet him and they had a great time, but full disclosure, before you go any further, this interview gets spoilerific. All right. It was just the way the conversation went. It was a really interesting conversation, so they just kept going. So if you haven't seen Greta yet, skip it and come back when you have. Otherwise, listen, enjoy, because Jordan's a really good interview and he talks a lot in depth about the film, but just as I say, beware spoilers. But here is Neil Jordan. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by the director of Greta and the co-writer, of course, Neil Jordan. How are you? How are you? I'm good, yeah. I'm good, good. Yeah, can't complain, can't complain. This is your return to, to feature films after seven years away. I presume that's a gap you didn't intend <laughs> to happen. No, it's a, but it's not that long. Come on, I mean, you know, it's it's, 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 it's not, not Kubrickian, Neil, but it's no, you know, it's, it's not. fairly lengthy. I wrote a novel in between times. Okay, I really were, did. Yeah. yeah, and I walked off a television series. <laughs> <laughs> All of which takes time. Okay, <laughs> walking off a TV show is, is that's not an easy thing. No, 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 no. something you can do it's, overnight. No, no. But I, I did write a novel called Carnivalesque. Yeah, uh-huh. and uh, the re- real reason I've been out so long is I was hit by a bus and I broke my, I shattered my kneecap. So I couldn't walk for a year and a half, you know. Blimey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What happened so, there? So I had a sports accident. I severed my ACL. I was crossing the street in Dublin after surgery and, uh-huh. you know, I had an encounter with a, with a large vehicle. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was a bit of, bit, you know, I, I literally couldn't get out of bed for six months, you know. I was in, you know, plastered up and all that shit, you know. So Did you have the, the whole life flashes before your eyes, all that, all that sort of stuff, or was no, it not no. quite that bad? No, it wasn't that bad, no, no. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty, you know, it was not good being, not being able to move, wasn't yeah. good, you know. But, <laughs> and, and, you know, as a film director, it's like, you're basically unemployable if you can't move, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't know, Neil. I've been, to, I've been to a few video villages now. I mean, <laughs> you can get yourself a big chair, one of those you big can. orthopedic I know, beds. I know, but you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. You a lot of directors directory loudspeaker these days. <laughs> I've seen yeah, that happen I as know, well. I know, but I imagine that's not it's your not, not your really, style. No. no. no so, did not. that period of enforced convalescence did that give you a chance in a way to focus on other projects, get the novel done, and think about various films? And at some point, Greta, I imagine, emerged. For you. Yeah, well, I was sent it, you know, yeah. basically, and uh, it was a thriller, stalker thriller that was sent to me by my agent, and I read it, and I thought it was really concise, far simpler than I ever would have allowed myself to be, you know, mm. and it was it had this marvelous hook about this handbag, and it was about between two women, and I just thought, that's really interesting, I'd like to get involved, I'd like to do something with that, you know. Mm. Really. So when you say it's, it's far simpler than you would have allowed yourself to be, do you mean as a writer when you sit down to write something? I just I just tend to be complicated, you yeah. know. And there was a very simple idea in this, you know. She finds a handbag. Handbag means a lot of things, you know. She finds somebody else's life in there, you know. Mm. She begins to pursue this life, or you know, she returns it. And there's an encounter that leads to the encounter could lead to, you know, could have led to a lifelong friendship. In this case, it leads to kind of chaos. And she ends up in a box, you know. I thought it was, it was uh, no. I yeah. I just thought it was terribly simple, and it was like there was the idea of a nightmarish fairy tale to it, and yeah. 
I basically said, if I can cast this right, I'll do it. And when Isabel said she wanted to play it, I began to rewrite the script, you know. So this mm. second half of it really kind of becomes as complicated as more more like <laughs> as complicated as I am kind of thing, you know. Hmm? But let's talk through that process then. So you get yeah. the script, you like the script, and you have a co-writing credit on the script. Was that the intent from the off? You get this thing. You well, think, no, normally as a director, if you, if you rewrite a script, it's very hard to get a credit, you know. So what happened? I don't know, really. I think the writer, in the end, he wanted to give me one, you know. He, he must mm. have liked what I did. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then at the point where you're starting to write the script, do you... Complicate things yourself? Is that no, is that no, your no? I construct things around the character. Really, I mean, I mean, I, bas- I basically thought that uh, in the original script, she was older. She was directly a Hungarian immigrant from the fifties. You know, this is Greta herself. Yeah. yeah, and she was the kind of woman you see like at a stopped at a traffic like weighed down by shopping bags mm-hmm. that you want to say, of course. Can I help you and carry help you across the road kind of business. Mm-hmm. You know, she's that kind of thing. And uh, when Isabel got interested in it, I said, okay, I'm going to restructure this part and to rewrite the part entirely you know so I made her give her this French veneer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know gave her the piano to play made her younger gave her more style and because uh, it has to be someone you think that seduces seduces yeah. and beguiles yeah but you yeah. can be seduced but you can be seduced by helplessness as well you know mm-hmm. in the initial script she was you know Francis was kind of seduced by the inability of this person to face the city and all that sort of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I know I just changed the I changed the character really, mm-hmm. you know, and um, made I suppose the kind of fairy tale resonances of it much more important, you know. She didn't play the piano in the original screenplay. There wasn't that painted Hungarian box, you know. Mm-hmm. There wasn't. She didn't get her finger chopped off. There was a lot of things that weren't there, you know. Mm-hmm. And. The fairy tales. I mean, that, that goes all the way back to the, the beginning of your career. Well, it's not that much. really. It's it's it's, it's more it's more the psychological drive of, of of a situation like that. If you take mm-hmm. a situation where, okay, a young a young woman is being pursued by this older woman who to whom she promised friendship. You know, I mean, it's kind of done. The situation of that is dying to get into the areas of kind of nightmarish confinement of a fairy tale. You know, mm-hmm. to me, it seems that's where this story wants to go. You mm-hmm. know. Mm. And I kind of asked the story where it wants to go. <laughs> and, and maybe that's my corny way of saying I rewrite it, you know, to yeah. where I want it to go. But I, I do kind of ask it. I kind of want to know where does this material want to head, you know yeah. what I mean? And it, it was interesting exploring it really because it was, I mean, there's two things that intrigued me about the script. One was it was so simple, yeah. The other was that it was between two women, yeah? So yeah. it wasn't Anthony Hopkins or it wasn't Anthony Perkins or it wasn't Nicolas Cage or whoever, you know? Or it wasn't Terence Stamp, actually, in The Collector. Do you remember The Collector? I do remember The Collector. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't a male. It was a female. The other thing was that it, the, 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 the obsession was not a sexual one, and I thought that was really intriguing. It was a kind of about motherhood, you know? And I began to think, well, maybe motherhood is the greatest pathology known to all of us, you know, the mm. secret one that's never ex- exposed itself, you know. And I thought that was really cool, you know. Was that always there from the beginning in terms of Frances has lost the, her mother at the beginning? Yeah, yeah, that was always there. She locks in, there, and she, yeah, one of the reasons yeah. she locks into Greta. Yeah, she locks in. She's and Greta locks yeah, into yeah, her. Yeah. yeah. That's um, fascinating. And I thought it was really intriguing, and I thought, okay, I'm going to develop these. So, so once Greta has captured her and stuck her in that childhood box, which is, you know, you can imagine a baby playing around in that box, can't you, mm. even if the lid wasn't closed, you know? Yeah. And she wants to reduce her to a child. And having reduced her to a child, she wants to remake her into the kind of a daughter that would uh, 
you know, have the refinement and obey the rules of etiquette that she herself obeys. You know, I thought mm. that's much more interesting than if she wanted a sexual partner. Yeah. I mean, as as the film begins to develop and as that relationship begins to develop, I detected a slight note that there was maybe at the beginning a sexual interest from Greta towards Francis. But as that yeah, goes where on... Where does sexual interest begin and end? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's... it's uh, you know, it can be bubbling underneath a paternalistic relationship or a maternalistic mm-hmm. relationship or mm-hmm. a master-slave relationship or anything. But the fact that it wasn't overtly sexual, which I thought was really kind of refreshing. I'm a bit, yeah. t- a bit tired of sex. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's my age, you know. <laughs> no, but do you understand what I mean? It's like, I'm a bit tired of, it you being know, the reason. being... Uh, the Outray and daring, yeah. you know, yeah. with kind of vaginal issues and <laughs> dick issues or whatever, you know, it's like, come on, you know, I've been there. You know, I think motherhood is a far more interesting pathology myself, you know. It's a fascinating treatment of the subject that it is a female on female stalker in this movie. Given the times we're in at the moment, given, you know, we're, we're still in the, uh, uh, in, the th- in the throes of Me Too and, and Time's mm-hmm. Up, uh, mm-hmm. was that something that you discussed with Isabel and, and Chloe on set? Was that something that attracted them to it? Was that something that attracted that you to it as well? I think it attracted everybody to it, that it was, that it was, uh, it was a relationship between women, you know. But, I mean, this, this I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling a story of feminist empowerment here mm-hmm. at all. It's just the fact that it was... The, the, the kind of men were irrelevant was intriguing and refreshing, mm. really, you know. And but I don't think there is that a Me Too aspect of this, really. I don't think there is necessarily no. either, but it's just it's, it's fascinating that there's a woman in this movie who is overtly mm. evil, is obviously a very strong word, but she's very, very clearly the villain. Evil, yeah, but yeah. the villain, the, 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 there's, there's great villainesses in fairy tales, isn't yeah. there? You know, yeah. I mean, Snow White, Hansel and Gretel. People who kept me awake at night when I was growing up. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. And, uh, Isabel, so you're reading this script initially, and it is this Hungarian woman, this this uh, with you know potentially with yeah. a shopping trolley full of of debris and, and detritus. Isabel Huppert doesn't necessarily leap off the page from that description you gave me. What, no, was she it was, about? no, she never, she was never a bag lady. No, 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 no. Okay. She, oh no, she was somebody who lived in a nice, a really nice apartment in Brooklyn. Oh, she always or, had that. Okay. Oh, she always had that, but okay. she was exhausted by life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, she no, she. I, I don't mean she was a bag lady at all. But she was just somebody who was older, mm-hmm. more obviously maternal, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Isabel was interested in the uh, the potential to explore the demonic aspect of a character, really, without excuses, you know. I mean, for me to make this movie, I need two, two really good, three really good actors, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, when, they, when Chloe, Isabel and Micah said they wanted to do it, I was in, really. The, the dominoes. She, the she, dominoes researched, well. she did research a lot of... Uh, what is that case? Uh, Fritzel, the Fritzel case. Oh yeah, yeah, Joseph Fritzel. Yeah, she researched that, and a lot of these cases of ab- cases of abduction. And the interesting thing is, they're all male. They're all men, except for Frederick West. He had a female accomplice, didn't he? Yeah, Rose. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and uh, who's the lady? The Moors murderers. Myra Hindley. Myra Hindley. Yeah. yeah. Who's regarded as the far more terrifying figure than Ian? Was it Ian, her partner? Was it Ian Brady? Yeah, Ian I feel Brady. like I'm being tested on serial killers here, What's Neil. That? I feel like I'm being tested on serial killers. I don't here, know much it? about them. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm not an expert at all. But it's like, so I'm sorry. It's a discomforting that I know too. I knew, I knew these names immediately. What does it say about me? Well, I know. So, I knew some. I knew somebody who actually slept in. Uh, in what's the name again? Frederick West's house. Really? Yeah, because it was like where? Where is somewhere in Somerset or Yorkshire? Somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah. 
traveling around, you know, you go to a pub, you begin to smoke dope, you meet some people, you haven't anywhere to stay. Somebody says, oh, come and stay. And I know, I know, I know a crash pad. You know that kind of thing? <laughs> Seriously. Wow. And he spent the night there, lying on the floor with Frederick and Rosemary West House, um, with some other people, I think, you know, which and, is kind of scary, isn't it? Wow. My God. But it's interesting the thought that you are so close to kind of... Uh, pathology you know yeah in particular in your city you know behind any door there could be not a ghost but a human monster you know mm. and another thing that appealed to me this was actually that there was no supernatural element to it at all you know but it's like were you yeah. tempted to inject one no i wasn't i wasn't <laughs> actually no no there are moments in the in the in the film actually where Greta almost feels supernatural. Yeah, yeah. There's a moment where she's following Micah's character, and Micah cannot see mm. her for love nor mm. money. Mm. Uh, that felt a little supernatural mm. to me. Mm. As a filmmaker, you you shape the film obviously three times: once in the screen and uh, the script writing process, again in the editing stage. But on set, when you're making a psychological thriller like this, where you have mm. a a villain who displays many times in the film that she can pop up out of nowhere mm. yeah, yeah. that must be a lot of fun to exercise that sort of Hitchcockian it's, yeah. muscle it's fun yeah 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 yeah. I mean it's more it's it's. I was it's kind of more in Roman Polanski territory really rather than Hitchcock you know okay. but uh, I mean what was satisfying about this movie actually is in, when I watch it is that so much of it is constructed so much of the story and so much of the fear and the kind of dynamic of the movie is constructed through the camera you know that's what was really interesting actually because it was that kind of challenge you know we end up in a tiny set which we built in dublin two rooms you know a little kitchen off at a piano mm-hmm. and uh it's a matter of actually composition through the camera you know as to how fear and the camera movement has how how how, how the kind of on the underworld or the under kind of tones of the story express itself, you know, mm. that's what I really like doing, you know, because... Uh, how do you approach that? Do you... Uh, oh, do I just... I just storyboard or do you... No, 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 no. You couldn't story with it. Well, I suppose you could, but... No, I just, you know, work out the shots and mm. pursue them to the end, really, you know, and it's a bit like writing the script. You find out what the shot wants to be, you know, that kind of thing. Is that something that, that, that evolves over time? It's now, what, 30... Seven years since Angel. So, have you felt that you have changed as a as a filmmaker in that time? Probably not at all. I'm probably <laughs> st- still not a very good filmmaker. Oh, I mean, when on, I when I when I did Angel, when I did Angel, I I didn't even know anything about. Uh, I didn't know about complementary close-ups and the rules okay. of cutting. All all I knew was what I wanted to see through the camera, you know. Mm. And just that, I would be happy with that. And Chris Mangus would say, "You just need a bit more than that, Neil." <laughs> I go, "Okay." <laughs> You know that kind of thing. So it was like, but I mean, the the, the point is, if if you make movies, I mean, I started as a, as a novel, as a writer, a short story writer. Mm. The only reason to make films is to construct images. You know, there's no other reason to be in the really tedious and exhausting business of filmmaking. <laughs> there's there there is there isn't really. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you don't want to construct something through the that your eye can see that mm. you know that has meaning and resonance and fear or you know sensuality or whatever. There's no point in being a f- being a filmmaker, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know. You mentioned there that uh, the men are largely irrelevant in in Greta, but oh, one of the men, Stephen, Stephen, yeah, yeah. I know. You're old, you're old, uh, you're old. Pal. Well, I mean, it, it was it's a very it's it's a very unforgiving part that really, but the scene where he dies, it was very critical to have somebody as adept as him to match his about because I wanted to treat it as a as a dance as a ballet. Basically, 
I ch- chose a little piece of Chopin mm-hmm. that she turns up to hide off, to, to disguise the banging from the room next door. And I discussed with Isabel and Stephen playing this scene almost like a ballet, you know, that she would dance into the music and, you know, she'd dance to the music as the drug is taking hold and mm-hmm. his conscience is kind of going wa- wavery and all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, you need a very good actor to construct even something as small as that. Do you understand what I mean? And that, yeah, that's right. why I, w- I wanted Stephen to play that role. Is that something that, that leaps out at you when you're reading the script for the first time? Or is that something that occurs no, to you? I, as you're, you're no, it's it? not. It's not I, I, I'm just looking for an actor who can do one very specific thing, you know. And, you know, I've done much bigger things with Stephen, obviously. I've done movies where he's been the centre from yeah. start to finish. Yeah. But every now and then, I did, I did a movie called Undine years ago with mm-hmm. Colin Farrell, and there was a part of a priest, and uh, he had a function as a therapist almost, mm. and to deliver a lot of humour and a lot of black irony to the the story. And actually, that's I, I can only think of one person who could do that, be Stephen Ray. When I did uh, uh, Interview the Vampire, mm-hmm. There was a part called of a character, I think called Santiago, mm-hmm. who had to do a, almost like a Fred Astaire dance, you know, up on, on, under one of the bridges of Paris and uh, put on this uh, Comedia dell'arte performance, mm-hmm. you know, which was almost written in rhyming verse and couplets and all that. You <laughs> know. Um, there's only one person I could think who would deliver that would be Stephen Ray, you know, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, the party plays in Greta is, is much... It's got much less heft than those parts, but mm. you know, if I need something really specific, I do ask <laughs> Stephen to do it. You know, there's just something wonderful about seeing Stephen Ray in a Neil Jordan film. There's a very Is reassuring. I, honestly, okay. I think there's a really, really lovely reassuring thing. I am always okay. fascinated with directors and actors who work together over mm. and over again. You yeah. know, Hitchcock with Cary Grant and James yeah. Stewart. You know, De Niro and Scorsese, obviously. Yeah. Even John Wayne, John Ford, that sort of. Kurt Russell, John Carpenter. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 Kurt Russell, John Carpenter. John, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think of that. I love well, John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah. He's a genius, isn't he? He's amazing. Oh, I, I prefer him to Hitchcock. I'm sorry, I, I do. <laughs> is that a terrible thing to say? Is I it? don't think it is. No, you're, oh, you're okay no. here. You're I saw okay Christine here. recently. Fucking brilliant. Christine's great. Isn't that great? Yeah. No, a car reassembling itself. It's one of the lesser heralded John Carpenter films. No, but it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. But uh, did you know, I mean, on Angel, did you know that this is a guy I'm going to work with again and again and again? Well, no, I mean, if you, th- if you think it was, I'm making an Irish movie and there are very few Irish actors at the time. Yeah. Oh, there were many Irish actors, but none of them had made movies. Yeah. I saw Stephen in a play, actually, that was directed by Jim Sheridan. It was called The Bloom of <laughs> Kushler. Okay. And it had this, uh, it had this noirish aspect to it. And I, I was looking at him and saying, that guy... He really seems like a movie actor, you know. So when I wrote Angel, I showed it to Stephen, you know. Mm. And so we kind of grew, we started exploring movies, the cinema together, really, you know. Mm. Simple as that. Here we are, 37 years later. Oh, my God, okay. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks very much. (laughs) I should say 27. Uh, Anyway, I'll let you go. Neil Jordan, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, well, let's start with uh, Neil Jordan's Greta. So it's an unusual setup. Well, I guess no, it's not. It's a fairly typical setup, and then it goes in some unexpected directions. So, Chloe Grace Moretz is Frances. So she's a young waitress um, living in New York, and she finds a handbag on the subway and returns it to its owner, who is Greta, who's played by Isabel Huppert. So, she's a piano teacher, she's a widow, she's kind of, you know, kind of isolated, doesn't have many people to talk to, so they become friends, you know, and it seems like this is a win for everybody, you know, we both need friends, we're kind of, you know, isolated in the city. 
But Greta begins to get a little bit too close for comfort. And then things get a little bit kind of weirder. And there are, you know, it gets to the point where Frances is, you know, she's kind of sheltered and she's not exactly a a very outgoing or very experienced or worldly person. So initially she's like, well, I guess this is just how things are. And gradually she begins to realise, no, this is not okay. And starts trying to kind of push back and, and, you know, get protection, goes to the police, says, hang on, this is all getting a bit weird, and basically gets no help whatsoever. And then, of course, it all starts to go batshit crazy as Isabelle Huppert just turned into, well, an Isabelle Huppert character, and but, like, dialed up to, like, 12. This feels very 90s. It feels like it comes from that school of sort of single, yeah. single white, white female. female. Yeah. Yeah. Heights, that kind yeah. of, yeah. There is a little bit of that, I think, going on. I think what's what's interesting about it is just how, like, how it amps up mm. like it starts quite you know contained quite slow you know one of those mm. sort of Isabelle Huppert kind of French thrillers and then it just goes way off much more than you're expecting you get dream sequences you get all kinds mm. of it gets a bit overcooked but also quite fun yeah I mean it's, it's really hard with these actresses not to just yeah enjoy it it's so. Huppert being mega Huppert <laughs> Mega Hooper. That's like it's like Mecha well, Godzilla. Me- yes, exactly. Mecha Hooper. Mecha oh, Hooper. That. That's yeah. a film I would absolutely watch. That'd be amazing. But yeah, it it, it goes full on crazy at the end. So, uh, so yeah, we gave this three stars, which I think is is spot on. To be honest, um, really, really interesting kind of setup. Amazing cast, and then just kind of amps up the drama way super high by the end. So if you like that sort of thing, and especially if you're an Isabelle Hooper fan, this is definitely one for you. Now, what should we talk about next? I'm I'm intrigued. This is a film I haven't seen, guys, but I know you both have. Dragged across concrete. Yes. What is going on? I have heard very conflicting things. Yeah. So this is a Craig Zala film. So he's the guy who brought us uh, such gory masterpieces as Bone Tomahawk and Brawl in Cell Block Ninety Nine, both of which are at terms genius and also absolutely horrific <laughs> to the point of almost being unwatchable. Mm. And this, at first glance, isn't a kind of a video nasty type affair. So this stars Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn as two cops who are very early on suspended for excessive force after stepping on a gentleman's head on a fire escape, Ooh. as you do. They then decide that they want to rip off a, you know, a potentially like, I don't know if he's a drug dealer, I think he's a drug dealer, they, to rip off a criminal because they're suspended for six weeks without pay, they need the money, long story short. So... It's a kind of, a, in many ways, a classically constructed heist movie. Like, they set their eyes on a target, they set out to do the job, and then the job obviously goes awry. It's not really a spoiler to say that. What's interesting about this one, this is a nearly three-hour mm. film. Whoa. And the setup and the execution is quite simple. And the reason it is so long is because there is an awful lot of background given to you like every character is given room to breathe they're given a backstory you see their home life their personal life and it's a really interesting experiment in taking a simple setup and making you care about these characters on both sides by giving them so much of an inner life and actually it works really really well the only thing i will say is it is at times quite manipulative there are points where they are clearly giving you backstory just to make inevitable bad things more unpalatable I mean, when one, it happens. one character in particular one, one character, character in, in particular, particular. Yeah, it's a little bit manipulative, but I think it executed very, very well. Um, and the actual thing is really well constructed. It's very, very tense. It goes to areas you wouldn't necessarily expect it to go to. It also stars Tori Kittles, who played uh, Leroy in Sons of Anarchy, which I'm rewatching at the moment. Huh. Um, but it's like really, really great film. However, <laughs> there is a slight problem with this. And 
I'm not sure whether this will ping on anyone's radar, but it is problematic in its treatment of race. That's not to say the film is massively racist, except the film is massively racist. <laughs> and it's one of these things where the characters make racist comments. There's there's a part where Mel Gibson and his wife, you know, their daughter's having difficulty because she's being assaulted by local ruffians on the way back from school. And the point is made that, oh, you know, it's because we've moved to a black neighbourhood. She's being harassed by the blacks. And then, oh, maybe if we move to a white neighbourhood, and that's why he needs the money, so they can move to a white neighbourhood. And you're like, oh, okay, this is quite blunt racial commentary. I'll be interested to see what they do with this. Mm. But they don't do anything with it. It's just left standing there. Oh. So these characters are portrayed as racist, yeah. but but it's not relevant to the plot and there's no addressing it so it's just what they are and then other characters also make racist comments and then you start reading into it thinking is this film just really racist that's the thing it, it doesn't really feel like it's a commentary on, yeah. on the racism because the film itself shows the scene where they what they're saying seems to be backed up that's what i had a problem with right because you don't need to have you know your lead characters be perfect you know no, they can be don't. flawed and you can have, you know, a racist character, but the problem is this film has doesn't do anything with it apart from just portray almost all the characters as being quite. Also, I think it's problematic if you have a scene where one of the characters going on a monologue that begins "I'm not a racist," but and the other character is Mel Gibson. Like in and of itself, that's really tricky well, ground. That seems provocative casting. Yeah. Um, mm. And I don't know. I mean, this film has had a very mixed reaction. A lot of people have given it good rating i reviewed it uh, for empire and i i settled on three stars because there's so much craft there's so much interesting stuff going on here it's just a really interesting film you're going to come out of this and want to talk about it yeah and i saw it a couple of months ago and i'm still talking about it it's really interesting and the last hour especially is is really good filmmaking Incredibly really tense. unpredictable mm. some really great twists but i did have a real problem it is very kind of sleazy and and there's some very horrible stuff that goes yeah. on and it just yeah, I had problems with with some of the way the film itself portrayed things. Okay, um, it's deeply unpleasant in places. Yeah. It's what you'd kind of expect from the creator of Bone Tomahawk. Do you know what I mean? Like it is. I mean, some of the gore and the violence in it is wildly over the top. But that's what Zala does. You know, he's provocative in that way. And I think you know, it's not off-putting. Like Brawl in Cell Block ninety nine in particular, I mm. thought was almost unwatchable. Not because it was bad; it's great, but. It's so unpleasant that you just... I had to stop the film and just take a breather. It was quite mm. traumatic for me. But, uh, yeah. I mean, the way it treats the female characters as well is, yeah. is you know, it, the opening sequence, there's uh, the guy who has his head sort of stomped on the, the sidewalk. He um, he has a girlfriend who happens to be naked because she's just come out of the shower and you have Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn uh, kind of standing around. She wants a towel. They won't give her one. And it's just got a very sleazy mm. sort of... And, and that kind of carries all the way through the film with different female characters. And it just... It, you come out feeling a bit just like oh, I'm not sure I like that. Yeah, the choices this film made. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Is it consciously trying to be a throwback? Do you think? I mean, I don't know. It, actually, I'm a big fan of Bone Tomahawk, and this actually made me sort of reappraise and go the way that that film treats Native Americans. And it didn't bother me so much when I saw it the first time. And then I was thinking, well, the way they're portrayed as just being sort of monsters and. I, I, I had some issues. Yeah, the mm. word I think is problematic. Problematic. Like, yeah. you, it's unclear whether it's deliberate or not. And if it is deliberate, it's done perhaps a little too subtly. And if it isn't deliberate, then it's problematic. Um, but either way, you know, with that in mind, with that in your head, it is, I think, a well-constructed thriller. And I think it's actually a really enjoyable film. But within certain parameters, within certain basically. parameters, just, right. just have that in your head and you know, mm. try and approach it in your own way. But it's, but it, it is, it is well done. It's, it's, it's a. Uh, Enjoyable is the wrong word, but it's it's a good film. Okay, so we gave it three stars, which 
is a recommendation. Okay, so then the other, I think, big-ish film out this week. I mean, for some reason, there's no massive blockbusters this week. It's almost like they're running scared of something coming out next Thursday, but (laughs) that seems weird. Is Red Joan. Who, of course, was the serial killer villain in a popular TV show, The Mentalist. Was she? No. Oh, That was Red John. uh, Right, so this is her female... No, So so, so this is... Tell us, Helen, what is Red Joan? (laughs) Red Joan is the story about an elderly pensioner who's played by Judi Dench, who is arrested and interrogated, and it turns out was a KGB spy in the years following World War II and basically instrumental in helping the Russians develop the bomb. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like it should be really cool because it's basically, you, you have, okay, you know, Judy Dench, first of all, doesn't really, you can't really go wrong, being interrogated and try, ha- having to sort of relive her experiences during the war in the sort of the British equivalent of the Manhattan Project, basically, um, was sort of working with yeah. uh, scientists in Cambridge. Uh, she's Her younger version is played by Sophie Cookson. And she, you know, has her sort of doomed love affair with um, Tom Hughes and basically gets kind of recruited to become an agent and it's it's all in the name of idealism for her it's all in the name of kind of peace maintaining peace because the the argument is if all if everybody has these weapons we'll all be safe kind of stuff but she you know gradually becomes sort of more and more compromised and and sort of but but gets away with it for decades until she doesn't anymore and that's that's the sort of point we come to in the film so Really, really good performances in this. I saw this way back. I saw this way back last year at the um, Zurich Film Festival. Incredible performances from Dench and a really, really good one from from Cookson, of course. But the whole film just feels a bit quiet, like it's still trying to be undercover, almost. Mm. You know, it's really, it's really strange in that way. It just, it just seems so low key that you almost don't quite know why you should care. Mm. It's directed by Trevor Nunn, who, of course, has a you know, storied career in theatre and so on. But it feels maybe just like he, he maybe didn't have the... I don't know, didn't feel comfortable going big enough, yeah. maybe, with this. How much dench do you get? What's the kind of level of denchness? To be honest, I would probably put it about 30-ish percent dench mm. and maybe 70-ish percent Cookson. Okay. She is really... She's not quite just a bookend. She does, they do come back to her during it. Um and she is more formidable than she initially seems as a sort of, you know, late old little old lady in a cardigan. But she's not the, the real focus of the story. It is the younger version of herself. So, yeah, so it's just a little bit too low-key for me, a little bit forgettable. Catch it on the small screen kind of thing. To be honest, yeah, I don't think you'll lose much by catching it on the small screen. Some great knitwear, obviously. It's a story set in the 1940s <laughs> and 50s. Amazing knitwear. Will Endgame yeah. have as good knitwear? <laughs> time Almost certainly not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we give it we give it two stars, which is sadly not a recommendation. I, I didn't dislike it. I just There's not much there to kind of cling to. So uh, a little bit disappointing in that respect. All right, well, that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. When we'll be joined by... Um, Joe and Anthony Russo. I, I don't know. I think they made some TV comedy or something. I don't, Helen, I don't know what it is. When we come back on the next podcast, we will have seen Endgame. <laughs> oh my God. Let's go. It's fine. It's fine. We can make it. We can make it. We can make it. It's less than a week now. But yes, anyway, so we, we will be talking about any other films that are out next week. Who knows? Uh, next week. It's very exciting. Um, until that auspicious occasion when we will have seen Endgame. <laughs> it's goodbye from James. Goodbye. Goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. And it's a toodaloo from me. I am off to investigate the physics of ring worlds. I will not rest until I understand what's going on in that shot in Halo, because it just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs>